you guys can have a seat. Like Ryan said, my name is Matt Briggs, and I'm the family pastor at Grace City. And it's my pleasure to get to serve on a weekend, week-out basis with your kids in the back. And it's, a, and it's a great pleasure to be here teaching this morning. And um, have you guys, I want to open up this morning by asking a question. Um, and I think I know the answer to this question. Um, nod your head back at me if you've ever made a mistake. You ever made a mistake before? I think we've all made mistakes before, and I think um, in those moments there are mistakes that are big mistakes, and there are mistakes that are small mistakes. The gravity of each um, is different. You know, there's different mistakes have different consequences and whatnot. Um, but so, so today I want to open up with a story about a friend who made a mistake. Um, we'll, uh, my friend, we'll call him Clint because that's his name, and. Um, it's a great place to start. And uh, so in the 10th grade, Brandon High School, um, he and I both got asked to the prom. And um, this is not because we were cool. Um, I, I don't think any of you thought that. Um, but it's not because we were cool. Um, it's because we were desperate. You know, when you're 15 and any girl asks you to do anything, you're like, yeah, I should probably do that. And, uh, and so I went to prom. He went to prom. We're in separate groups. And um, we kind of end, end up at the venue and I see him at the venue. We're kind of waiting to go in. And I see him from across the room at the venue. And, uh, and he starts making some signal to me. You know how like if you have a good friend or a sibling, like you can tell when they need help. Like you just know that in that moment that they need help. Like he wasn't doing this or anything. But, you know, maybe, you know, I could just tell that in that moment he needed help. So, so I left my date and I walk over to him, which you, sh you shouldn't leave your date at, at prom. Uh, but I left my date and I walk over there to him and I'm like, what's going on? What do you need? And he's like, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> like this, this is not worth it. Like, I did not need to be here. Like, this was, like, I should not have gone to prom with her. I should be at home. Get me out of here. I said, I can't get you out of here. What do you think I'm doing? <laughs> Fifteen years old, I'm at prom. And, um, like, they had been to her house for prom, and her parents had sat with them the whole night. They had had dinner. It was just this really weird night. Um, she's a really special person. And, um, and so, like, but, you know, in that moment, um, in that moment, for Clint, he probably thought this was like a socially devastating mistake. Like he has just made a, this is just a huge mistake for that night. And as it turns out, he was fine. He went on to live a normal life, mostly. And she went on to be uh, her. Um, so um, did any of you think that was going to end with them getting married? Weeks that he thought that story ended with them we'd get end with them getting married. No, they did not get married. They have definitely gone their separate ways. But here's the thing about mistakes. You know, that's a silly mistake that had no consequences. But some of our mistakes have a lot more gravity to them. Our mistakes have a lot more weight to them. And they, they really do matter. So we wrestle with this reality. We, we know what is right in our minds. We know what we're supposed to do. But in our hearts and our actions, we don't do what we're supposed to do. We, we know what is right. We want to do what is right. But so often we fail to do what is right. Our knowledge and will aren't enough to defeat sin in our own lives. Listen to what Romans 7:19 says. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. This is because we cannot be good. This is because we are not good. You know, I think there's this uh, misperception going around that like people are genuinely good people, right? People are generally good, but they just make mistakes. 
But I, I think that um, Scripture teaches and my personal experience teaches that that is just not the case. Um, those of you that have ever been around kids know that um, kids are born um, knowing how to be selfish. They're born knowing how to say no. They're born knowing how to snatch. They're born knowing how to lie. Like it is, their kids are born in sin. We are born in sin. The Bible teaches and our life experience teaches us that people are not inherently good. We are inherently struggle with that sin nature in our lives. The last few weeks we've been talking about David. And David was a man after God's own heart. We saw just last week, if you were with us, David extend great grace and mercy to Mephibosheth, a grandson of a rival king that tried to kill David. And so we know that David in that moment and in many moments expressed wisdom, expressed uh, great leadership extended God's grace and mercy to those around him. Like we know that that was part of what, how David lived and how he operated. But we also know, because most of us know the rest of David's story, that David also made some really catastrophic mistakes. David was not immune to the power of sin. You know, it'd be easy to check in and check out in this moment. You know, this is a story about David and Bathsheba. And you guys have all heard this story. You all know this story. But, but hang with me here this morning because I really do believe as we study this familiar passage that um, we can see not only how um, to deal with sin in our own lives when we've committed it, but how to keep us from going there in the first place. So if you have your Bible or your phone or you want to look at the screen, uh, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're going to read a bunch of it. But we're going to start with verses 1 through 4. 2 Samuel 11 verses 1 through 4. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. Okay, so we read this story. We know we see David making big mistakes here. I know that, that as I read this passage this week, I was like counting on my hands, you know, the number of mistakes that he's making throughout the Scripture here. And it's easy to look at that passage and be like, man, I, could, I can't imagine doing that. Like, I can't imagine doing what he's doing. I can't imagine falling into that type of sin. But I think it would be beneficial for us uh, to read that passage with an air of humility and to be always constantly aware of the sin that's in the corners of our lives and the sin that's lurking in our own heart. Uh, we're going to get to this later, but the Bible says that our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. And so we know that we are, we are capable of way more than we think that we are. Um, and there's a clue here in this first verse about David where he says that David, uh, in the springtime when the kings go off to war. Now, scholars have a lot of disagreement about this. Some scholars believe, condemn David and say, kings are supposed to be at war. David was not at war with his people and he should have been there. He's the king. He's the leader. He's the commander in chief. He should be there. And other scholars believe that this is just a timestamp kind of letting us know that this, at this particular moment, David didn't end up at battle with the people, with his army. But here's the deal. No matter what side of that argument that we fall on, we do know this, that David was at home comfortable. He was comfortable in his, in his roof and in his bed while his army was out 
at war. Sin is often most appealing when we're most comfortable. Because comfort is an anesthetic to our dependence on God. Comfort is an anesthetic to our dependence on God. When we find ourselves in comfortable places, those are the times when we can let our dependence on God slip. I know that's true in my own life. When you think about the highs you experience in your life, the things that are really great, you're like, thank you, Lord, for how you've blessed me. Thank you for all that you've done for me. And in the lows in your life, you're like, God, I desperately, desperately need you in this moment. God, I can't do this without you. But it's in those moments where everything's just okay. It's in those moments where we're just kind of living in the status quo. Those are the moments where we can lose our dependence on God. Those pleasures and comforts that God gives us to enjoy can often be the very thing that keeps us from being dependent on Him. Our victories can be just as dangerous to our souls as our defeats, perhaps even greater. David was so successful as a king. You can just see him thinking, you know what, I can sit this one out. You know, they've got this figured out. They don't need me to handle this, this particular battle, that they can do it without me. I'm just going to stay home, and I'm going to stay in my bed, and I'm going I'm to rest. But we see in that moment, this began to spiral on David when he made a decision to, to sit on the sidelines here. And his life was going along nicely. This decision in and of itself in a silo maybe doesn't end up being that big of a decision. Maybe doesn't end up being that big of a deal. But because we know what happens next, we know that this was a decision that spiraled into many more failures and mistakes in the life of David. And David hoped, and it's very clear in the scripture, that David thought this was going to be a one-night stand. Like there is no indication in scripture that he wanted a long-term relationship with Bathsheba. Um, he says he, had, he slept with her and then he sent her home. Right? There is no indication that, that he wanted to do anything but have his way with her and send her home. Um, and, to, and that would be that. But then verse 5 happens, which says this. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So in this moment, in this moment, David's got a decision to make. In this moment, David's sin has come back to haunt him and he has a decision to make. One of the aspects of this event that we haven't really talked about at all yet is that Bathsheba's husband is obviously not around. Right? He is actually at war. He is, he is where he is supposed to be. Uh, Uriah is at war with the troops, and so he is not home. And so it's not like she can just blame the pregnancy on her husband and move on. The king has to do something. David has to do something to cover up his own mistakes. Well, he, could, he doesn't have to cover it up. He could fess up, but instead we know that David decided to try to cover it up. So he brings Uriah home and he says, all right, I want to hear a battle report. What's going on at the battle? But the real thing he wanted to do is he wanted Uriah to go home and be with his wife so that there would be some doubt as to who the father was of the baby. So he brings Uriah home this way in hopes that he would spend the night with his wife. But it did not work. Listen uh, in 2 Samuel 11 verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace. And a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Verse 13. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw him so he'll be struck down and die. 
So when Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So you can see that David's original plan to cover up his sin didn't work. You know, he was going to get Uriah drunk and send him home. And, but here's the deal. Uriah refused to enter his own home. Uriah refused to go on the sidelines and be comfortable while the rest of the crew was out at battle. So we see like a, a really interesting picture of David, the king, the mighty leader, being like, I'm going to sit this one out. And Uriah being like, I want to go back to my army at all costs. I want to go back and be in the battle at all cost. It's crazy to think that the David that we know and we've seen throughout the scripture didn't, at least in this moment, see Uriah's actions and think, am I in the wrong place? Am I doing the wrong thing? But we see David in this moment fall prey to one of the side, side effects of sin that happens to all of us. Uh, we become very dense, right? Be caught up in our own sin and don't even realize um, what's going on. Um, and so naturally with David, um, Uriah won't go back. He, uh, the cover-up plan is not working. So, so David did, as most of us do, when our to, plans to cover up our own sin, our own mistakes don't work, he had someone murdered, right? Isn't that what we all do, right? We've all been there, right? No, obviously, I'm being facetious. But you know that in those moments, our deepest desire is to cover up our sin, and there's no depth that the human heart will not go to, um, Sin captures our imagination, and it deceives us into thinking that, that the pleasures of that, pres that present moment are all that we need. We see as much in David, and we become convinced that our heart must have what it wants, no matter the consequences. You know, you hear this all the time. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. You know, you hear people tell kids that all the time. You know, follow your heart. But as believers, as people that know Christ, we know that following your heart is really some of the worst advice that we can give because we know that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. I alluded to this earlier. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And if we're honest with ourselves, we already know that. Like we know that when we look in the mirror, we know who we are, right? We know where our heart is. We know deep down in the depths of our soul who we are. And the reality is that we don't need even any outside intervention to fall into sin. We can do that plenty well all on our own. And I think we all know that too. James 1.14 says this, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. The battle against sin is not fought primarily outside of us, but it's fought within our own hearts we need God's power to overcome sin. We cannot fight that on our own. We need the power of Jesus and the cross to, to fight sin in our own hearts, in our own lives. It's the only cure for our sin. Let's jump back to David. We know that, so with Uriah dead, the cover-up seems to work. You know, David marries Bathsheba. All seems well. And then the prophet Nathan comes to see David, and we see a, a completely different uh, sentiment begin to unfold in the kingdom. And this is a very jarring passage of Scripture to read. And uh, I, I love this passage of Scripture because to me it's one of the great moments of just, um, of God, of gotcha moments in Scripture really. So let me read this to you. Second Samuel chapter 12, well, we'll skip over a little bit, and we'll read verses 1 through 6. The Lord sent Nathan to David. 
When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Some of you have pets like this, I think. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So this story serves up feelings of anger in David. You know, in this moment, David cannot see what is happening right in front of his own face. And he burns with anger and it stirs up this emotion in him. He's like, the time for mercy is over. This guy must die. But then David, then Nathan turns it around on him. Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. This is a proper scolding. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who's close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord's taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. So I can't imagine how devastating this moment is for David. I think this is a moment that many of us can relate to when a mistake or a sin in our own lives that's private becomes public. A moment we're outed for a, a mistake or a problem and, and like we're just in that moment there's this mix of like shame and embarrassment and guilt and feeling like you let everybody down and, and in that moment it's so easy to quit. So easy to quit and every sin and every mistake we have does have consequences but that doesn't mean we should quit we know that we have a God who is gracious and a God who is merciful but we also know that part of God's character is that he is just and so we know that our sin has consequences always and for David he had to live with the consequences of this sin the rest of his life we know that David's life was fraught with turmoil for the rest of the way through and his son died our sin always has consequences. Romans 6.23 says, In that sin, the wages of our sin is death. And that's the bad news half of that verse. But the rest of that verse says, But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't have to live in shame or regret or failure. We've been bought with a price. We've been forgiven by the price Christ paid for us. All we have to bring him is a heart that's ready to be forgiven, a heart that is broken 
for our sin. We see that contrition. We see that repentance from David in the book of Psalms in chapter 51. David sits down as David does throughout his life. When David encounters any moment, we find David often going to pen and paper to write down what is going on in his life and in his heart. And so in Psalm 51, we're going to read that together. Psalm 51 is a beautiful picture of David's heart and where he is in this moment. And I love every word of this psalm. So we're going to read this. We're going to read this together as we look at David's heart and the state of where he is after this confrontation with Nathan, where all has been laid bare and everybody knows that he's messed up and he's failed. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you prove right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. We see David's heart broken for his sin. And here's the deal about the sin in our own lives and our relationship with God. Until our hearts are broken for our sin, we are not ready to be repentant for our sin. Our hearts need to be broken for our sin before God. We see a brokenness in David here um, that is just uh, basically unmatched throughout all of the scripture, this brokenness for what he has done in his life. And that brokenness may look different ways for different people, but I know that we need to understand the gravity of our sin as we come to God with it. And when we do mess up and when we do fail, as David it says here, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. The word steadfast there means make me your go-to guy again, God. Like you know you can count on me again, God. And so he says, renew, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. David knew that his failure was not final. David knew that his mistake was not the end. When we mess up, we know that God still wants to use us. When we fail, we know that God still has a plan for our lives. I say this all the time, that as long as you have breath in your lungs, God has something to do in your life. God has a plan for your life. You've never gone too far. You, you may think, man, I, I've just messed up too much. But no, that's not our God. That's not the God we see in the scriptures. If when I stepped off this stage in a few minutes, if I tripped and fell down the stairs, which is not an unlikely thing to happen, if I was to trip and to fall down the stairs, 
I could just sit there on the floor, right? And be like, well, I've walked today and I failed walking and so I'm done walking. This is where I live now. Someone get me some wheelchair, I'm out. Like I'm not walking anymore. That would be completely silly, right? And completely outrageous. But that's the temptation when we fail. That's the temptation when we sin. That's the temptation when we mess up. We're like, you know what? I've messed up. Um, I can't recover from this. I've let everybody down. Um, so I'm just going to wallow. I'm just going to throw myself a pity party and God can't use me anymore. We want to believe that. That's the easiest thing to believe, right? But here's the thing about God's love that's different from the love that we experience with one another. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more or to love us less. When we mess up, when we fail, God still loves you. God still wants to use you. We see throughout the scripture, God used broken people. We see God use people that are truly are messed up. Think of all the people that God used that failed. I think about Noah. I think about Moses, another murderer. I think about his brother, Aaron, David, Rahab, Matthew, Paul, and I even think about Peter. Think about Peter. This is one of the greatest examples of restoration that I think we see in the scripture. So we know Jesus is being led off to the cross. And Peter, one of the inner circle of disciples, while Jesus is off to the cross, he's, he denies Jesus. He denies Jesus. He denies Jesus. He fails. He fails. He fails. Three times he fails. Jesus dies. I imagine those moments. I can't imagine what the guilt Peter is living in in those moments. Then Jesus rises from the dead. Jesus comes back and he meets with the disciples. He goes to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, I love you. He asked Peter a third time. He says, Peter, do you love me? We see in this exchange with Jesus and Peter, Jesus restoring Peter, Jesus restoring Peter. Just a verse or two later, he looks at Peter. He says, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. I know you've just failed just days ago, just a couple of days ago. You failed in the biggest way you've ever failed in your whole life. But guess what? I still want to use you to build my church. You know, we, you may not have murdered anyone. You may not have committed adultery with anyone. But we all deny Jesus, right? In our hearts, our lives all the time. When we, some of the choices we make to go against God and walk away from him, those look different ways in different people's lives. But we know that despite those mistakes, despite those failures, despite those times when we want to just give up, we know that God has a plan for us and God wants to redeem us and God wants to extend his grace and mercy to us. And yes, there's always going to be consequences to our sin. There's always going to be consequences because God is just. But there's also forgiveness. There's grace. There's mercy. David chose to press into that mercy and grace instead of running away, instead of falling down, instead of giving up. He chose to press forward and do what God had called him to do. And so in those moments when we mess up and when we fail, there's the temptation to give up. There's a temptation to say, God will never use me anymore. But here, let me be of encouragement for you today. If you remember one thing today from this message, God isn't done with you. Like there's no mistake you can make that would, 
they would keep God from using you or keep God from wanting to use you. You have the choice every day. You have the choice right now in this moment to get up, to dust yourself off, and to move forward. So if you're in the middle of a pity party, get up. If you're in the middle of feeling sorry for yourself, get up because you're bought with a price and God loves you and God has a great plan for your life. Don't waste your life in a pity party. Get up, dust yourself off and press forward and do what God has called you to do. He's got something he wants to do in you. Don't miss out. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for the grace and mercy that we see in the scripture. God, we thank you that in our hearts and in our lives, even in those moments where we want to give up, that you are walking right there beside us. God, when we're running away from you, you're running toward us with full speed. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for those moments where you show your great love for us. Your word says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, I thank you for that. Thank you for dying for me. God, I thank you for each and every life represented in this room. God, for those that don't know you, God, I pray in these coming moments that you would speak into their heart, in their lives. Holy Spirit, you would move. Bring that to their heart. Bring that to their lives. God, for those of us that do know you, for those of us that are struggling, for those of us that are dealing with the sin that, that creeps around in our own lives, God, I pray that we would expose that sin to the light, God, and we would get up, we would dust ourselves off, we'd accept that mercy and grace that you've given to us, and we'd press forward into the calling that you have for us. God, in these next moments, as we partake in communion together, God, I pray that we would take a moment to act, to remember the sacrifice that you made for us that makes all that grace and all that mercy possible. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So every week at Grace City, we do communion. And we believe communion is a visual representation of the price that Christ paid for us. The Bible says in John 3, 16, a verse you probably all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The perfect son of God, Jesus, died so that we could have life, so we could have access to that grace bucket that has no bottom. Jesus on that cross, and more importantly, his victory over that cross is what bought our salvation. In just a moment, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 28, which is one place the ordinance of communion is given in Scripture. And I ask you to pray and reflect on the sacrifice of Christ. You can confess sin. You can express gratitude. You can, whatever it is you need to do in this moment, we know that God moves in in mysterious ways and God moves in many ways so I want you to be obedient to what God wants to do in your life Um, you come you take communion with us but communion is for those who know Jesus and for those that have a relationship with Jesus but what's the but the cool thing about that is is that relationship is there for you if you don't know Jesus if you haven't accepted the gift of his salvation accept that today we'd love to talk to you about that or maybe you're struggling with something in your own life We'd love to talk to you. This altar is open as a place to pray. Just do whatever God wants you to do in this moment. Close your eyes, speak the words to him and say, God, show me what I need to do in this moment. So if you would stand with me and I'll read the scripture and we'll take communion together. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you drink this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the picture of communion that's the price that you paid for us. God, I pray that in these moments that we'd be obedient to whatever it is that you've called us to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name.